Boy, no pressure after that introduction, huh? I'm not feeling it. I don't know if you guys are or not, but I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling the pressure that is. I'm feeling, I'm feeling the word coming to me, though. So I'm excited. Uh, I had four weeks off of preaching, and since uh, in five years on staff, I don't think I've ever had four weeks off of preaching, even when we were one campus. And so uh, I got back last week and got to preach this message at Carmel, and I was fired up. And so I hope you're fired up this morning, too. If you have your Bibles, open them to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22 is where we're going to spend most of the morning. If you don't have your Bibles with you, there should be one of these on the floor around you. Uh, as always, it's our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, please take this one with you. Uh, we want you to take it with you and then bring it back next week and uh, be reading. It's about page 14 or so in these Bibles. I think there are a couple different ones, but if you can't find it on page 14, I promise if you turn one way or the other, just a couple pages, you'll find it. Genesis 22. Let me ask you a question. How many of you work during the day at some point? Okay, good. More than half the room probably. Okay. How many of you um, go to school during the day? All right. The whole uh, front section up here. Good. Uh, I'm glad you're still in school. Stay in school, kids. It's great. It's good for you. Uh, how many of you like take care of kids, take care of a family, take care of a house during the day? So how many of you then all of all together, how many of you, when you come home at the end of the day, whatever the end of the day is for you, you're, you're tired, right? How many of you are tired? And, and you get to the end of the day, and I'm not talking about like 11 o'clock at night, but I mean like six or seven o'clock at night, you get home, your work is done, and you just want to chill for a while, right? You just want to veg. Yeah, I see some heads nodding, right? Like I'm like, I feel like one of those people on Wally when I get home. You know what I'm talking about? You remember that movie? Like, I just want to sit there, my TV, my drink. In fact, I think this is my afternoon project now that I think about it. I'm going to build one of these chairs, like with the TV screen in front, the cup holder to the side. Because the truth is, you're around people all day. You're working hard, whether you're working with kids or you're at school or whatever you're doing. You get home uh, from a long day of work, and you put dinner on the table, and then you clean up the kitchen. And then, like, 7 o'clock at night, you sit down on the couch, and it's like, I just want some me time, right? Don't you feel that way? Like, I don't want to be around people. I don't want to have a chore to do. I just want to sit there and veg out. How many of you are with me? Yeah, we are some lazy sons of guns, aren't we? I mean, we... no, not really. I don't think so. But I do think that we like to put our own interests first, don't we? Like so many of us, uh, when, especially when we get to the end of the day, and, I, and if you have kids, you know this already, that when you're tired, your interests always come first, don't they? Well, that's not a trait we see in God. In fact, as we, uh, what we'll see today is that God is a self-sacrificing God. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we finish up our series called The Father Is. Over these last eight weeks, what we've been doing, we've been looking at eight attributes of God. These are eight things that we can know from Scripture are true about God. And the reason this is important, even if maybe these messages haven't always had the practical takeaway you've come to expect from Genesis Church, uh, the reason it's important that we understand these truths about God is so that when we get in a situation where uh, we don't really know what's coming next, like we don't know what to do or asking questions like, why me, God, or why is this happening, or, or, or where do I go next, or how should I make this decision, how should I make this choice, we ask those questions, we can know for a fact that there are certain things that are unchanging about God, that these things are true, that we have some perspective, okay, through which to view our trials and our tough times in life. Uh, author... Pastor, theologian, A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so what we've tried to do over these eight weeks is to shape what comes into our mind when we think about God. And so it's so important that you put into your mind the truth about who God is, that, that even when you don't understand what's happening to you or, or what do I do next, you know that there's a God who loves you, 
like who's crazy about you, right? And that he's good and holy and worthy and present and powerful and self-sacrificing. So today, let's talk about that, how God is self-sacrificing and how sometimes that puts us in opposition to God. Sometimes the fact that God is self-sacrificing puts us in opposition to God, and here's why. Because we are not self-sacrificing. I mean, for the most part, most of us, most of the time, we like to put our interests first. In fact, that's what often puts us in opposition to God. In fact, if you, have, if you take nothing else away from today, like if you've got to leave early today to go watch football or, uh, or whatever else you've got to do, here's what I want you to take away. We are self-satisfying. We are self-satisfying people serving a self-sacrificing God. Isn't that true? I mean, I know in our minds, we like to think that we're self-sacrificing. We like to think that we really deeply, honestly care about others and that we like to put other people's needs first. But, but I've got a friend that says, I can tell what your priorities are by looking at your calendar and your bank account. And if we look at our calendars and we see where we spend our time and we look at our bank accounts and we see where we spend our money and we look at our relationships, isn't it true that most of the time, you're spending your time and money to satisfy your own priorities, your own interests, that we are self-satisfying. So I'd like to give you some examples of the ways that I tend to be self-satisfying, but I only have 30 minutes. And so instead, what I thought I'd do is share with you a couple ways that you might be self-satisfying. That won't take as long. So uh, let me give you an example. You're walking around downtown Indianapolis. You've got some money in your wallet, maybe $50, and you turn a corner, and standing there is a homeless person with a sign. What do you do? I think for most of us, most of the time, we uh, look the other way, pretend not to see them, and we push that button hoping that the light changes faster so we can cross, right? Okay, maybe that's just me. We are a self-satisfying people serving a self-sacrificing God. Or you come home from work. An example I used earlier, you come home from work. It's 7 o'clock at night. You're tired. It's been a long day. Throw together dinner. You clean up the dishes. You sit on the couch, and three minutes... After you sit on the couch, your son or daughter comes strolling in the room. Mom, I'm bored. Dad, I'm bored. What do you do? Well, if you're like me, you very quickly come up with three or four things they can do to go entertain themselves on their own, right? Because like, I'm tired. I've had a long day, and I am a self-satisfying person serving a self-sacrificing God. So those two are really about me, all right? I'm just kidding. But, but here's one about you. This one's not true of me. You wake up on Sunday morning and you're tired and the weather's nice and there's something going on today. You don't feel like going anywhere. So even though there's somebody here that needs to hear from you, like there's somebody here at church that you could serve, that, that there's a, a, a body of believers that's gathering in one place to worship the holy God, you know what? I think I'd rather stay home because we are self-satisfying people serving a self-sacrificing God. Hey, and I get it too, by the way. I have to be here, <laughs> and you don't. And every once in a while, I'd probably take a Sunday off too if I could, but I can't because I'm a self-satisfying person. You see where I'm going with this? So, so here's what's happened. From the very beginning of time, God created us to be in relationship with him. You know that the very first people, God lived with them in the garden. But here's what happened. Those people, those first people that we read about in Scripture, they were self-satisfying people. They had their own interests at heart. And so when they heard that they could potentially do the one thing that they were forbidden to do in this perfect place, and it would satisfy their needs, it would make them more like God, what did they do? 
they did it, right? They succumbed to temptation, and that put them in opposition to God. Right? We can read about that in Genesis. There's something to understand about this, that this puts us in opposition with God. See, from the very first moment when uh, those first people disobeyed God, God didn't change. Like these attributes that we've been talking about over the last eight weeks, God has always had these and will always have these. These are eternal attributes. They are always true about God. And so when these first people succumb to temptation, when they sinned against God, then that put God in a bind because he is a loving God. He loved them. He wanted to have a relationship with them. And he's, he's a good God. So he wanted to try to find a way for these people to get back to him. But, but the problem is that he's a holy God. And so he couldn't live in the garden when sin existed in this garden. So what did he do? He had to kick those first people out. You know, Paul talked about that a couple weeks ago, that God is holy and God uh, can't be around our sin, that he can't be in the presence of sin. And so uh, he kicked the people out of the garden. He had to show them that there was a consequence for sin and disobedience. We all know, I mean, if you're past the age of about 16, you understand that there has to be a consequence for sin and disobedience, right? There, there are, we don't know any good parents who don't give consequences to their kids, right? Like we all know that if, if you're a good parent, there's going to be a consequence when your child disobeys. We all know parents who don't give consequences, right? We all know parents who, stop, 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 or I'll say stop again. You know, that's the consequence. And we see how their kids grow up, right? But we know that good parents have consequences for sin and disobedience. And we know that if we as flawed, imperfect parents give consequences for sin and disobedience, how much more should a holy, good God give consequence for sin and disobedience? But God is good, right? So we've got God is holy, God is good. So God is good. So he wanted his children to come back to him. He wanted uh, good for his children. And so to make a way to get back to him, to, to make a way to pay for those past mistakes, unfortunately, the cost was blood. There was a sacrifice. A sacrifice of an animal had to be had. And even for that very first mistake, Scripture tells us in Genesis 3 that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, maybe you've never thought about this, but, but those garments of skin, where did they come from? Well, they had to come from animals, right? There had to be blood shed for that very first sin. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I didn't really think about this until I was preparing this message. Those animals that died in Genesis 3, that was probably the first time an animal had ever died in the history of the world. Have you thought about that? Like there was no death in the Garden of Eden. God said that he gave uh, humans all the plants and the seeds to eat, and he gave the plants to eat for the animals. There was no reason for an animal to die up until that moment when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, that only because man chose sin was death introduced into the world. And since that time, there's been blood required to pay for sin. We see it next uh, with Abel in Genesis 4, where he brings uh, blood sacrifice to God. And then we see it uh, with Noah in Genesis 6, where God sees the increase in corruption on earth. He sees how corrupt the earth has become and almost decides to destroy the whole thing and start over again. Man, do I wonder what he'd say about right now. Whew. Right? God sees all this destruction, all this corruption, and he goes, you know what? I'm just going to start over. But he finds one man, one man who is noble, a man named Noah, and he decides to preserve his family. But there's bloodshed. People die. Animals die for sin. In Le Leviticus, we see a whole list of rules and sacrifices set up for different kinds of sin. And why? Because God is a bloodthirsty God? No, because he's holy. And there has to be a consequence 
for sin and disobedience. He has to show us how detestable our sin is in his sight. You know, often as a pastor, I get a chance to talk to people and, and so many times people who are struggling with like they're right on the, the verge of, of becoming Christian. They're right on the verge of moving from chair one, a chair one seeker to a chair two follower. You know, they're, they're right on the verge. Often one of the last questions they have is, I don't really understand the cross. Like, why did Jesus have to die for me? Why couldn't God just have declared us forgiven? Because I, I think the, the, uh, the um, undertone of that statement, the underlying, um, I don't know, I don't know what to say. The underlying thought behind that statement is that, like, if God would just forgive me, I could do better. But, but I think people who say that don't really understand the depth of their sin. They don't really understand how detestable it is in God's sight. Because, really, if you could do better, wouldn't you already be doing better? God had to show that there was a consequence once and for all, that sin is costly, and so only blood could cover it, and it required a sacrifice. All right. That takes us up to Genesis chapter 22. I know you're probably wondering if I was ever going to get there, but we're there now. Uh, Genesis 22. We're going to look at a man named Abraham and a time when God called Abraham to be a self-sacrificing man. Genesis 22, uh, we'll start with verse 1. These verses are going to be on the screen. You can read them there. You can read them in your own Bible. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. One thing you'll notice about this, uh, every time God calls to Abraham, that's Abraham's response. Like, here I am. Tell me what you, want me to, what you want to tell me. That's his response every time God talks to him. Uh, unlike in the garden where Adam and Eve hid from God, Abraham is open to God, right? Then God said, take your son, your only son. Remember when Paul uh, spoke about holiness and he talked about re repetition, right? And how important repetition is that when we repeat something in scripture, it's because they want you to know it. Take your son, your only son. You're going to see this several times in this passage. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. This is a big calling, by the way. I don't know if you're getting this. God's calling Abraham to something pretty extreme. Early the next morning, verse three, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, okay, I want you to see this. They're walking for three days. Abraham and Isaac have had plenty of time to think about what's about to happen. They've been walking for three days and only then do they see the place in the distance. So this is a long journey, right? They see the place in the distance. He, Abraham said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. I want you to just, I, I want you to just catch something here. What's Abraham about to do? He's about to go sacrifice his son, right? He's about to go make a sacrifice. He's about to go give a gift. To him, that was worship. He said, I'm, we're going to go worship. So to him, worship wasn't just singing and raising his hands, right? It was bringing a gift to God. It was making a sacrifice. That was worship to Abraham. Abraham, verse 6, took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Notice Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac, and he makes carry, Isaac carry his own wood for the sacrifice. Have you thought about that? Like, he places the wood on Isaac's back. Parenting 101 right there, parents. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, uh... You kind of see Isaac's wheel turning here. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? 
He's very perceptive, isn't he? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. This, to me, as I read this, this is such a powerful statement for both Abraham and Isaac. Because Abraham has such incredible faith that he believes, even at this moment, they've walked for three days, even at this moment, as they're walking up the hill, uh, and Isaac's got this wood on his back that Abraham is planning to burn his son on, he believes that God's going to provide an offering for him. And Isaac, who is starting, I think, to figure out what's going on here, when his dad says, come on, God will provide, what's Isaac do? Okay, he just continues on. I love Isaac's obedience in the moment. Now, why was Isaac obedient in the moment? I think, I'm convinced, it's because his father was right there with him. And he trusts his father. And so he's going to go on up the hill like his father says because he trusts that his father has his best interest at heart. All right. When they reached the place, verse 9, when they reached the place, God had told him about Abraham built an altar there and arranged wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, Abraham replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. See, in those days, the names they gave to places meant something, right? They would, uh, something would happen, and they would give that place a name that commemorated that event. And here, Abraham called this place, the Lord will provide. Isn't that incredible? I mean, isn't it sometimes hard to recognize for us how God really provides for us in tough situations? I mean, isn't it easier to look back and think about the, the times that we've sacrificed and the things that we've given up to get where we are, the, the work, hard work that we've put in to get us to where we are, to earn what we've earned, to, to, to have what we have. And isn't it harder sometimes to admit that God is just a really good provider, that he gives us our talents, that he gives us our relationships, that he gives us our families, that he gives us our jobs, that, that but for his grace, that we may not have anything? Don't sometimes we just need to call it what it is and look at our life and say, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And that's what Abraham did. And isn't it hard sometimes to trust God with that? And isn't the reason sometimes when we think about how much we've sacrificed and we've given and we don't really trust God to be a good provider, isn't it because we don't really trust that he can provide our needs for our needs? I mean, when we fail to be generous, like whether it's we don't give to the church or we don't give to charity or, or when somebody's in need and we just don't try to meet that need. Isn't it because we don't really trust God to take care of our needs? I know that's true for me. Like when we neglect our spouse or family, when we choose rest over serving others, when we decide to satisfy our own needs, isn't it really because we don't trust that God can satisfy our own needs? That, that his self-sacrificing isn't enough for us? Sometimes we just need to look up and call it what it is. Just say, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. But I want you to see something else from this story. 
God didn't just provide the lamb for the sacrifice. That would have been enough, right? Because God saved his son Isaac, his only son. And if he had done that, shouldn't that be enough? But that's not what God did. He, he, he did something else. He was faithful. He did that. But also what Abraham received was so much more. If we continue on in verse 15, it says this, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. Isn't that just a funny statement? <laughs> like, you know, when people swear to God and God's like, I swear by myself. Isn't that cool that you could just do that if you're God? I, I can't do that, but you can. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Because of his obedience and because of his willingness to be self-sacrificing, God blessed Abraham. He received a blessing. And if I were to go around the room today and ask every one of you face to face, hey, would you like to have a blessing from God? I promise you, almost everybody except the smart alecks in this room would say, yes, I would love to have God's blessing. Yes, I want God's blessing in my life. I want God's blessing in my financial life. I want God's blessing in my family life. I want God's blessing in my health. I want God's blessing in my life. I mean, yeah, I'm all about God. Give me more God, especially give me more of his blessing. Sign me up for that. but I'm not sure that I'd sacrifice my child for it. I mean, if it meant I had to sacrifice one of my children or my, my only son, I don't know that I'd be all about God's blessing. I mean, I'm all about God, but... I mean, most of us in this room have no idea what it's like to lose a child. And those of you who do... I know that you would say it's the worst pain you've ever experienced. And there's probably no way you would want to give up a child, even for something like God's blessing. But the good news is, someone's already done that for you. Like You don't have to make that sacrifice because there's another son, an only son, right, whose father marched him up the hill to be sacrificed. Another only son who reminds us in John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Another only son who, by the way, had to carry his own wood for his own sacrifice up the hill, right? Another son who asked if there was another way, but when his father told him no, he went obediently because he was in the presence of his father. Only this time, when he got to the top of the hill, there was no other sacrifice because Jesus himself was the sacrifice. And while God spared Isaac the knife plunging into his heart, he would not spare his son, his only son, from the nails being driven into his hands and his feet. He would not spare his only son from the soldier's spear diving into his side and blood and water gushing out to make sure he was dead. See, because we serve a self-sacrificing God, he was unwilling to let us pay the price that we should have paid for our sin and disobedience. In fact, that verse, John 3, 16, is the very definition of self-sacrifice. It gives us a pattern to follow for being self-sacrificing. I'll just show you that pattern uh, here in this example. The very first part of that verse is this, God loved. God loved. God loved the world. 
And he didn't love the mountains and the oceans and the, the things that he had created in the world. He didn't just generically love the world. He loved the people of the world. God looked down and he saw the people on earth and he loved the people that he created. He, he looked down and he saw you and he saw me and he loved us. He loves us. And we see this in Jesus, who's our perfect earthly example of this. So many times as Jesus walked around, people would come to them and come to him in their brokenness, in their sin, in their disobedience. And scripture will tell us that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at her and loved her. God loved. So what was his response to that? God loved, so God gave. God loved, so God gave. He gave up something of value. He sacrificed. He was self-sacrificing for us. That's another word for giving, right? That God was self-sacrificing. He gave himself up for you and for me. God loved, so God gave. Now, what's the result of that? This is the second part of the pattern. God loved, so God gave. Whoever believes... And that word uh, believe there that John uses in this verse, John 3, 16, is the Greek word pistuo. Uh, pistuo means to have confidence in. So it's not just like a yeah, yeah, I believe. It, it's to have, uh, to put trust in, to put confidence in. It's, to, uh, it's not just like I believe it, so let me punch my ticket to heaven. It's like I have a deep conviction about this. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 10 where he writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, if you pistuo, that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. God loved, God gave. Whoever believes, what? Whoever believes will receive. Will receive what? Will receive eternal life. Will live on forever. I mean, think about this. This is really the promise that God made to Abraham too. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore. He's basically saying your name will never die out. You will continue to have influence as long as people are on earth. He's giving Abraham the promise of eternity. And God, through the sacrifice of Jesus, makes that promise to us too. But each of us has a choice of whether to accept that sacrifice or not. You know, that scripture is very clear. It says that, that Jesus died for all, but that not all will accept that gift. Not all will accept God's sacrifice. <clears throat> I, I read a story about a professor at a small college. He's a professor of religion. And uh, at the end of the semester, he realized that his students had learned a lot about God, had learned a lot about the Bible, but they still didn't really understand uh, the idea of this gospel. Uh, that, that, that the gift of God, the sacrifice of God is a free gift available to all. And so he decided he was going to need an object lesson. So what he did, he decided he was going to call up the strongest kid in the class. Let's call him Steve, all right? So he calls up the strongest kid in the class. He asked Steve to get to class a little early. And uh, as the students piled in the room, the professor got out from behind his desk a great big box of donuts, enough for every student in the room to have a donut, about 30 students in the class. And uh, they piled in the room, and Steve came up to the front of the room, and uh, he started three rows of 10. He started at the end of the first row and asked the very first student, uh, would you like a donut? Jason, would you like a donut? Jason looks at, he's expecting his final exam. He says, sure. And so the professor says, Steve, will you please do 10 push-ups so that Jason can have a donut? And so he lays the donut on Jason's desk, and Steve, one, two, three, four, Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, done. No problem, right? Goes on to the second student. Danny, would you like a donut? Sure. Steve, do ten push-ups so that Danny can have her donut. And he goes to the third student and the fourth student and the fifth student. By now, Steve's starting to sweat, 
right? 50 push-ups. Professor gets to the sixth student. Jamie, would you like a donut? No, thank you, she says. All right, Steve, will you please do 10 push-ups for the donut that Jamie doesn't want? She says, hey. Steve does his 10 push-ups obediently. He continues down the first row. By the end, uh, Steve has done 10, uh, 100 push-ups. Each one is a little bit more labored than the last. And about halfway through the second row, about 15 students in, the professor came to Scott. Scott was a football player. Scott, would you like a donut? Scott says, can I do my own push-ups? Professor says, no. Steve has to do your push-ups for you. Scott says, well, I can do push-ups. I can do 10 push-ups. Professor says, my class, my donuts, my rules. Scott says, well, I don't want one then. Professor says, Steve, will you please do 10 push-ups so Scott can have the donut he doesn't want? By now, the tension in the room is starting to grow. First two rows, get to the end of the second row, the first two rows are littered with uneaten donuts. Steve's face was red. It strained with every set of 10 push-ups, and a fair-sized puddle of sweat was collecting on the floor. As the professor started down the third row, one student bounded into class late. About two or, th two or three students in the class stood up and said, no, don't come in. But it was too late. Michael had already entered the class. The professor immediately turns, Michael, would you like a donut? Michael didn't know what was going on. Michael said, sure. Steve, will you please do 10 push-ups so that Michael can have a donut? The whole class groaned. Oh. So they get down the third row. Uh, Steve's face was red and straining, and veins were popping out. Every push-up was getting slower. The grunts were getting louder. Strain on Steve's face was evident by the time he reached the, third, uh, the 30th student, Linda, he said, Linda, would you like a donut? And she looked down at Steve, and she wasn't sure he could do 10 more push-ups. She just broke down in tears. Why can't I help? The professor said, laid a donut on her desk and said, Steve, will you please do 10 push-ups for the donut Linda doesn't want? And Linda got mad. She yelled at him, I don't get it. Why can't I help him? And the professor said, because I gave Steve this mission. He's in charge, making sure that everyone in the class has a chance to eat a donut. I told Steve that none of you could have a donut unless he was willing to sacrifice for everyone. And as Steve finished up his last push-up, his arms buckled, and he fell face first to the floor. The professor looked around at all the uneaten donuts on the desk and thought, what a shame let all of Steve's hard work go to waste. And as, as our Savior Jesus hung on the cross, he breathed his last, and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And as he did that, God sacrificed himself so that you and I could spend forever with him. God loved, God gave, whoever believes will receive. Would you pray with me? And as we bow our heads and we're in an attitude of prayer, I want to ask you this question. Just, I want you, this is just between you and God. You don't have to answer to me or to anybody else around you, but I want to ask you this question. What, what's the one thing in this world that you value the most? Maybe it's a possession of yours. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's a, a car or a house. Maybe it's your health, your fitness. There's something in your life that's the most important thing. It's the thing you've been thinking about while you've been in this service, that when I get out of here, I'm going to... What is that thing? And once you have that in your mind, I want you to pray with these questions in mind. Now, the first one is this. If God told you today that you could have more of that thing, 
but it meant less of God, would you make that trade? Would you do that? Tell God about that right now. And as we continue in prayer, I want you to think about this. If God told you today that you could have more of him, a greater relationship with him, more of his blessing in your life, but it meant that you had to give up that thing or have less of that thing, would you do it? Tell God about that. God, I have to admit that so often I get caught up in the things of this world and that becomes my focus and that becomes my priority. I can become easily become self-satisfying. But Lord, I know that your example and your call to me is to be self-sacrificing. And so God, as for me and my family, we want to, be, we want to have more sacrifice. We want to be more sacrificing for you. Help us, even as I leave here today, help me to want to give up more for your kingdom. Help me to want to put aside the things that matter to me and take up the things that matter to you. God, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, we're going to finish this service with one more song. Would you stand if you're able and worship with us?